You are listening to Down Home. Food is the linchpin that connects us to our land, connects us to our culture. It also connects us to each other. Cesar Chavez said it best. If you want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with them. The people who give you their food give you their heart. In this episode, Jay and I talk about the unique aspects of Scotian food with Nigel Finley, who has worked many years as an executive chef, and Wendy Wilson, prominent black educator, author, artist, and community activist. Welcome to Down Home, the Nova Scotian experience by two black men. I am Derek Wise. And as always, we have Jay Jones. What's up? And our conversation this week is with uh, Nigel Finley. Nigel, how you doing? I'm great, thanks. Welcome. Okay. Uh, thanks for having me. No problem. And um, our second guest is uh, Wendy Wilson. What's up, cuz? Hey, how you doing, fellas? Good, good. So full full disclosure, Wendy is my second cousin on my mother's side, so the Wilsons. The Definitely. Wilson family here in Nova Scotia. Yes, 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 yes. yes. All right, so uh, Nigel, we're going to start off with you. Um, so Nova Scotia actually has a very unique history when it comes to food. Now, from your perspective, uh, tell us what separates us from the rest of Canada. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of influences that come into uh, Nova Scotia cuisine. And, you know, I feel like a lot of those um, outside influences trickled into the rest of Canada as well. And, uh, you know, I had a little bit of trouble kind of separating out in my head, you know, what is purely Nova Scotian, especially when you're, you know, you grow up in it and you're you're immersed in it. Yeah. Um, you know, is to to think about a certain dish as, you know, this is super Nova Scotian is not something you do. You just think about it's just food. It's just what yeah. you're eating. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of what, um, for me, f- makes something feel Nova Scotian or taste Nova Scotian is a lot of the people, um, the people aspect that comes into it. It's our, our food seems to be so um, kind of, convivial and social and 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 focused on you know the gathering of of people together and there and there's there's a certain sort of hard to hard to pinpoint it but a certain sort of like love that you can taste in it um obviously so it's it's almost like a cultural i think so Yeah. yeah i mean there's there's dishes that i would say are quintessential nova scotian dishes that when I introduce them other you know in other cities in in the country people are people peg them as quintessential east coast and mm-hmm. and are typically super impressed but you know when you're doing like clam bakes and you know fresh biscuits and um you know lobster boils and stuff like that you know blueberry mm-hmm. crunch um you know pickled herring smoked herring mm-hmm. kippers all that stuff you know um that's just something that has a certain sort of certain sort of love to it i guess certain sort of um you know just richness right. it's true it's true right. yeah i mean like even just thinking about this podcast in itself i just I just thought about kitchen parties and, and food and community and someone would bring a case of keys and, you know, <laughs> different things like that. And just uh, the thinking about this, just, uh, you know, it, uh, it reminds you just of growing up, how rich the food history was and how much it brought us together. So I can agree yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Like, like to Jay's point, like um, from growing up, it, it was always uh, centered around the church and, and gathering and, like Sunday dinners, that sort of thing. Um, and like, 
talking about uh, our, you know, the African Canadian uh, or African Nova Scotian, I should say, uh, portion of it. Uh, Wendy, you're actually quite versed in uh, history and culture of uh, of our community, uh, which dates back, you know, 400 years. Um, can you just give us a little bit about that African Nova Scotian history with food? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, so my people have been in this province, our people, um, both uh, sets of parents, or my parents and both sets of grandparents, um, and as well as uh, eight generations uh, with the nephews and great nephews and nieces. And so um, I kind of went on a quest, maybe about around 2016, 2017, when my daughter came home from school. She was attending the Francophone school here in Nova Scotia, or one of them. And uh, she did a project on uh, some of the founding cultures, some of the historic cultures here in Nova Scotia, the, the Gaelics and the Mi'kmaq and uh, the Acadians and also African Nova Scotians. And so, um, you know, I was very curious about what she listed as our traditional foods, what she listed as our traditional clothing and what was our language, all those like components of culture that other people are so steeped in and just come so automatic. Like when we think about Jamaican culture or Irish culture, we, we already know these things. These things are common knowledge, mm -hmm. the food, the, the, the flag, the, um, the clothing, all of those pieces are those ones that you quite often would see at um, a place like a multicultural festival. But what I notice is with my culture, the African Nova Scotian culture, those things weren't as solidly documented. And mm -hmm. so I went on a quest to start doing some informal research and just asking folks, uh, you know, some elders in North Preston and folks from down the line, like, what kind of meals are you eating? Like, mm -hmm. what are you eating? Like, because I'm pretty sure based on our connection with the AUBA, the African United Baptist Association, that even though we were spread, you know, from Yarmouth right straight through to Cape Breton, over 52 historic Black communities, um, that we were eating the same things. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like that had to be legitimized because quite often when we talk about African Nova Scotian food, people will say, well, that's just maritime food. That's just food that we eat in Cape Breton. People eat that in Newfoundland. And um, what I discovered is that some of it is. Some of it, some of it is the traditional maritime dishes, like the boiled dinner. But you know, of course, we had to have the, the salted pigtails in there. Other <laughs> folks around the province weren't doing it with the salted pigtails, and you know, the chow chow and all those other pieces. And then I also, when I talked about you know baked beans and saltfish, uh, um, the fish cakes, um, and folks would say, well, yeah, well, we have the same recipe and and what I realized is that our saltfish, uh, our fish cakes are generally fish cakes that anyone would eat in the Maritimes. Like mm -hmm. you would see that all like the, just the salt cod, the mashed potato, the potato, the white onion and the summer savor. Mm -hmm. That's how my mother always made it. That's how mm -hmm. I make it. And that is a Nova Scotian thing. But I think it was one of those things that when we um, came to this province felt familiar, right? Like every black culture, has some kind of fish cake. Mm. So when we came here and we saw folks were doing these fish cakes, I think we most likely thought, wow, okay, that's familiar to me. So mm -hmm. we adopted salt yeah. cod. Um, baked beans. Um, what I tend to do with my baked beans is put some kind of salted um, pork in there, like a ham hock or bacon or, you know, the um, um, salt, uh, fat um, pork scraps that you would fry up and throw in there to flavor the meal. Yep. And what I discovered was that that would have been a meal that our ancestors would have been eating during the times of enslavement. They would have been given rations of beans and corn and uh, hence the cornbread, right? Beans, mm -hmm. corn, and then they would find scraps of meat or be given scraps of meat, you know, things that were discarded to add flavor to the meal. And so when I think about the meal like that, even though baked beans and salt fish, um, fish cakes are something that most people are accustomed to in the Maritimes, I feel a special connection to that meal. And I know that other African Nova Scotians do as well. Mm -hmm. So um, 
it just a little bit more about um, where our food comes from and our like really eclectic list of um, recipes. And I say recipes loosely <laughs> because um, we don't necessarily write things down. Yeah. You know, if you're looking for a list of African Nova Scotian recipes, probably the only spot you're going to find them as a collection is church cookbooks. Mm. Right. Someone's willing to give up their secrets. Otherwise, you know, the biscuits and the cornbread, every family has their variations on mm -hmm. it. And we also had to make sure that we were working with what we had. So you might have you know, layered this time, but next time you have shortening or you have butter, but you made it work. And yeah. so you made those adjustments and you learned by watching, mm -hmm. right? You learned how to make these meals through osmosis, you know, being in the kitchen with your aunties and in your grandparents and, you know, your mother. And so um, every time I go to make any of these meals, not only am I, you know, throwing a bunch of ingredients in the pot, but I'm also throwing in in the most important ingredient, which is memory. Yeah. 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 Right. Memory and food is directly linked to culture. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. That, that, that brings back memories of sitting in the kitchen with my grandmother <laughs> and she's uh, no, no cookbook around, no, no books at all. And she's just like throwing stuff in there and like making pie apple, her apple pie. Oh my gosh, man. But she's like just throwing stuff around, making stuff in and, and like the preparation is like, like that and the end product came out it was just it was it was amazing i just i, I remember that that's a that's a very good memory <laughs> yeah, for sure yeah. now how do you think like how were so back in the days of enslavement you know obviously we know the story of like sometimes they didn't have proper land to to garden and stuff but they adapted very well and how like is that how they sort of added their own flavor like being able to grow some spices because sometimes nova scotia is sort of the scottish way that we sort of consider the way we grew up some of those you know main main staple recipes sometimes they weren't really flavorful at least they weren't in my house because yeah anyway my my great-grandmother wasn't the greatest cook but you know very loving, but not the greatest cook, but sometimes the food was bland. So how did they sort of bring their, their stuff, like, you know, that they learned from before they were slaves or, you know, how did they bring that into the repertoire? Okay. So one, so um, one of the things that we we did right from the beginning before um, enslavement is that when uh, folks were being stolen from Africa, the, one of the things that they did, one of the most important things and one of the most important things to them in their culture was to be able to bring their food. So, okay. so there wasn't, okay, you got an hour, grab what you need. Like there, obviously we knew there wasn't any of that. People were mm -hmm. stolen out of the villages and uh, from the interior of Africa and what they decided to do at great risk, I would imagine is to sow seeds into their hair. Really? Oh, wow. So wow. we sowed in rice and okra seeds and yam seeds, and we brought our food with us. Wow. We brought those mm. things with us. That's how important food was to us. Mm -hmm. Food, is, um, in my opinion, food is everything. It really is. It, it has a link to everything. Our mental health, our spiritual health, food is sacred, our uh, new, uh, you know, physical health, all of those pieces are our gut health is uh, directly linked to our, our brain health and yes. our mental health. And so we knew how important food is. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a man named, by the name of um, Anon Leiloli. He's uh, one of the uh, leaders in the Black Food Sovereignty Movement in Toronto. And okay. he said something the other day, I was chatting with him, and he said something that really struck me and so, so importantly um, mentioned that food is our premier medicine. Mm. Yeah. Food yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's uh think about that. That's actually quite powerful, actually. It's, it's uh, <laughs> which, which uh, it, that goes both ways because um, our Western society is sick because of some of the stuff that we're putting there. You know that's what I mean? A lot of the stuff, you know, that 50% uh, of what young people eat, is ultra processed food mm -hmm. yeah right is this so this is not some of it, a lot of it is making us sick 
Uh, people who are severely food insecure die nine years prior to people who are not. Wow. Wow, they a- have higher rates of diabetes and respiratory illnesses and even links to suicide. Mm. And this is a Canadian study that was done, I think, around 2017 and at the University of Toronto. So this mm-hmm. is Canadian statistics. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very different than the way that we grew up, obviously, because everything I, I remember everything being homemade. Yeah. Like like me, me and Jay are expats, but we we do have a, a really great appreciation for some of the foods that we did grow up with. Like I mentioned my grandmother in the kitchen that like those are those are just awesome memories. And it was centered around her cooking and the yeah. meals that she made. Now, um, Nigel, what are some of the dishes, some of the your cooking memories that you remember growing up with in Nova Scotia? Oh, there's so many, um, you know, uh, and just to kind of reflect on some of what uh, Wendy was saying that, you know, I remember like, like, I think all of you being in that kitchen, just like watching my mom do stuff, watch my grandmother do stuff. And that was the central part of the house. And that was where you wanted to be. And that was where the, you know, all the, everything was happening. And mm. I, th- I think that, you know, our collective generation are better off from being exposed to that. You know, my sisters aren't chefs, but they both learned how to cook just by osmosis, by being around. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that kind of an older generation knows how to provide for themselves and potentially is better off than a younger generation that doesn't have as, as much exposure. I think that, and which I think is a huge issue. Um, which causes them to go the route of processed foods and and so on and so forth, just not being exposed. So I think mm-hmm. that that foundation is super crucial um, to the uh, to our to our health. Um, and my you know my mom cooked every meal at home. We had a garden. We we ate out of the garden, not exclusively, obviously, because mm-hmm. gardening in Nova Scotia is not <laughs> farming in Nova Scotia is not a not a year round affair. Um, but, um, you know, there was always like an oat cake or a butter tart or a scone, like Nova Scotia tea biscuits. I still make on a regular basis and and people are, are blown away. Mm -hmm. Um, cornbread, which I, you know, until recently didn't think too much about kind of where, where it came from. I kind of thought of it as, you know, a fairly Nova Scotian thing and a fairly mm-hmm. Southern U.S. thing, and and then you know realizing, thinking more about where that came from is 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 pretty interesting. Um, beef stew with the you know with the like the biscuit dumpling, yeah, um, mm-hmm. floating around in it. Um, haddock chowder, like chowders all the time. Grilled yeah. mackerel. Um, you know, this is stuff that people don't even nobody eats anymore. I would say, yeah, but, um, you know fishing mackerel out of the harbor which in hindsight might not be the most healthiest thing but um, we, we did it though you know, we, did we it. ate it we we rolled the dice on the fact that they were pretty migratory fish and hopefully they're spending most of their life somewhere else mm-hmm. um but you know that's one of my fondest memories is growing up um you know in august rowing out in a little rowboat and you know jigging mackerel out of the harbor or out of the northwest arm and eating that for breakfast yeah um you know pepper relish like my mom had we had a whole pantry of preserves which is again something that i think is 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 disappearing slowly um you know we we picked blackberries off of this bush for days and days and days in the summer i think we had a jar of blackberry jam every day till Mm -hmm till we pick them again the next year yeah um you know pickles pickles in the cupboard rhubarb jam in the cupboard mm. um pepper relish on everything i think it's just man i could go on and on and on yeah uh, it's it's interesting how you know how similar growing up in different cultures but how similar uh nova scotian food is like some of the stuff that you're mentioning my grandmother had a rhubarb patch in the back, you know, she, she, she preserved rhubarbs and, you know, the, the Nova Scotian um, 
um, tea biscuits are very different than scones, though. <laughs> yeah. There is a there is a different right, and mm-hmm. and, and, I, and like um, and, and I didn't discover that difference until I was older. Like yeah. someone someone gave me, I said, okay, yeah, I can have that tea biscuits, and then she kind of looked at me. What's a tea biscuit? You want the scone? Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I'm tasting like, what is this? <laughs> what is this? It's like styrofoam or something. That's what I always felt the scone was. But Nigel, just a quick question. Would you say um, your mom inspired you to cook? Or what was your inspiration to get it into becoming a head chef? Or a yeah, I, I think it, you know, being surrounded by in that environment um, triggered my, my passion for cooking. Yeah. Um, my dad didn't cook when I was young. He's mm-hmm. since taken a great interest in it and 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 cooks all the time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the time he didn't. And I distinctly remember my mom saying, you know, as a gift to your future wife, you're gonna learn how to do two things. You're gonna learn how to cook and you're gonna learn how to do laundry. Yeah. <laughs> and from, you know, yeah. years old, I was I was doing both. And uh, I I I was pretty confident that that's where I wanted to go. Um, and would always muck around in the kitchen and even high school like my friends and I would we'd have dinner parties like we'd Mm -hmm. buy a bunch of food and buy good wine and 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 do stuff that I don't think other 16 year olds were doing Um, uh, which prompted me to you know explore the restaurant industry and you know my first job was my first meaningful job I would say was a dishwasher and a in a nice restaurant, mm-hmm. which happened to be in, in the Ontario area. I went for the summer to Muskoka, hang out at a buddy's cottage and work as a dishwasher. And I, I, I was fortunate to get into a place where the chef was uh, a huge kind of influence on, on my career and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, I, if, if my second experience or my third experience had been my first experience, I'm not sure I would have been doing this right now but yeah, yeah. I got into the right spot with the right people and you know from a few weeks in even as a dishwasher i was like i want to be that guy wow and cool. uh you know and that and that was I, I think times are a little bit different now but that was in the area era where chefs were just becoming kind of rock stars and it was it was pretty hardcore and and badass to be in a kitchen and so that partnered with the fact that I already loved cooking, mm-hmm. um, kind of solidified my path, I would say, and then cool. just just grinding ever since from being mm-hmm. a dishwasher. You know, I've done yeah. I've done more hundred hour weeks in my life than I oh, want to count. Wow! Um, but yeah. it's you know, people say it's not work if you love it, and I would say that you know, about half of that was I didn't love and would consider work, but the other half is has kept me going and just moving on and moving up in my career and just trying to be trying to take the job of the guy above me pretty much the whole time. Right. Um, and, and doing it with a passion for food and, and, and also trying to share that passion as much as possible. You know, it's a yeah. favorite part of my, the favorite, my favorite, the favorite part of my job is, is teaching and mentoring and, and, and sharing that I love nothing more than to see somebody young come in and learn something new or add something to their repertoire or, or under my tutelage grow and and be successful in their own right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that comes from just, I think being that initial beginning of being nurtured um, in the, in the kitchen and in the food environment is something that's translated um, that I now pass on as much as possible. That's important. It's important to do. What about you, Wendy? What are some of the foods you grew up on and loved? Um, some of the foods I grew up on and loved are, um, Jay, you mentioned, a, you asked me a question earlier about just like seasoning food and mm-hmm. how we would have had access, um, you know, in prior years to different seasonings. And I, what I wanted to mention is that the way we uh, get our food is, hasn't always been through like traditional farming methods. Um, and I think we learned a lot from the indigenous folks, probably both here in Nova Scotia and when we were down south. And so 
um, in, you know, traditional indigenous cultures, a lot of food is foraged, right? So right. you find out, you become familiar with the land. And um, when I think about the health piece, I think about like how we nourish our bodies um, physically, but also um, how we nourish our souls and how we get out into nature and connect with nature. And that's what, you know, the collection of food kind of does for a culture is it connects you and makes you familiar with the land. And so um, a really big thing, um, Derek, as you remember from up in Diasboro, we're foraging for blueberries mm. and berries. And uh, my cousin Angela, uh, my aunt, Norm, uh, aunt Norma's daughter, uh, we were chatting a couple of years ago and she had mentioned how for some families, this wasn't necessarily a choice. Like I know when I went up home to Guysboro, um, I, I had a choice to pick blueberries, but not everyone had, has a choice. It's, it would be a job for the younger folks in the family to go out, fill the bucket up. Don't come back unless the bucket is full. <laughs> All right. Uh, lamb's ear and different greens and different, um, herbs that you could find growing naturally in the environment so that when you think about a farm, it doesn't have to be, you know, row upon row of the same type of things. It could be going out into your local forage and a uh, forest and finding uh, uh, things that, you know, you could use to flavor your foods or to add or to supplement, uh, you know, what you might get from the grocery store. Or th it could be the substantial part of your meals, what you would find, you know, near a river. So um, one of the fondest memory memories for me is um, a connection with food and my father and how he always made the night lunches. So my mother made the majority of meals uh, with the exception of like Christmas. My dad would like take care of the turkey and he was this, he did night lunches. And so um, I remember his night lunches consisting quite often of fried eels. So fried eels, fried mackerel, gasparo. I remember going to get smelts with him. I don't know where we were, but we jump in his station wagon or his van, whatever he had at the time. And mm -hmm. he, a man on a bridge and with a garbage bag and he dip his net into the water and Gasparo would jump in. And, and that's how we got a lot of our fish. Like very rarely do we ever um, get fish at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, although I do remember, well, we actually never got it at the grocery store. We got it at Fisherman's Market. There used to be a Fisherman's Market down on the waterfront. Yeah, my father knew all the guys. He loved um, like some uh, nicer like varieties of fish, like halibut was his favorite. But it was quite expensive, and that's something that you couldn't catch yourself. And so, but you know, my dad. I remember uh, another fond memory was um, helping him to skin rabbits that he would prep later on. He would go out home, set the traps, sneers. He taught my brother Jason how to set sneers. I never learned how to do it. I wish I would have, um, but because most likely because I was a girl and that's not something that girls would traditionally do, but I would help him prepare the meat. So we used to go to school, Jay, I don't know if you remember this from back in the day, having people come to school with the rabbit feet, you know, the oh, rabbit yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Rabbit paws. yeah. <laughs> the I real, do. so that's what I would help. And that would be the reward is I'd help my dad skin the rabbits. And then as a reward, I would get to take the rabbit's feet to school. Like, and it was mm -hmm. a pretty popular item back in the seventies. Like yeah. supposed to bring you good luck, but the rabbits and the Gasparo and the smelts and the eels and the deer meat, all of those things would have been something that we would have borrowed or learned from the Mi'kmaq people mm -hmm. in it. These are the same food they eat as well. Yeah. Right. So we got the maritime influence you know, the boiled dinners, we have the Mi'kmaq traditions of gathering and foraging foods that are out on the lands. We also have uh, the methodology. So the way we cook fryer foods, like from our African ancestors who would have cooked over an open flame, you know, would have fried lots of foods. Uh, also our Caribbean ancestors who would have lent their spices and some of their stewing methods, because for the most part, African Nova Scotian food is slow food. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. Right? It's slow food. It's food that takes all day. You yeah, know? Yeah. Food that you have to prep the night before. You have to salt. You just can't make salt cod fish cakes. You have to soak that the night before and yeah. drain the water and be attentive and be home and pay attention. Yeah. And 
So it, a lot of our food is slow food, but um, as you can see, it comes from a lot of different sources as well, from mm -hmm. the spices to the how we cook our food to where we get our food from, how we forage. Um, and the way that I grew up for the most part, and the, I know the way we grew up, um, food didn't come with instructions. Mm -hmm. You know, there was my mother, I didn't, I never saw my mother looking on a box trying to figure out, well, three fifty. <laughs> you know, it was all like raw ingredients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that she used. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, just, they took a recipe, sorry, D, they took a really. recipe and just sort of elevated it by experimenting, you know, mm. it's really cool. Yeah, just to, um, uh, Wendy, both both you and Nigel were talking about uh, your experiences around fish and stuff like that, and uh, memory, uh, and basically how we didn't get our fish from a supermarket. It was uh, other sources, right? I remember, um, you know, growing up on Creighton Street, and um, this dude used to come by the house or come down the street, and he would, yeah. he would he would put his head out the window and go fresh mackerel <laughs> yeah yeah percent. the mackerel yeah. he was yeah. all over all great park block a block b block square he was in square town he was on he came in and he would yell the macro and he always the macro man that we had he <laughs> always reserved the uh fish that were pregnant that had the row mm -hmm. for my mom like he always knew oh. that like we love row so he's like saved a couple of fish that have the row. And that is something that, um, as the youngest, uh, you know, I was home a lot with my mom. And so that's something that like we kind of shared secretly, like she'd be prepping, cleaning the fish for dinner, but we would fry the row up right away and mm -hmm. her and I eat that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That, uh... that and the turkey neck. I was always around for the turkey neck when it came out a couple hours before the turkey was ready. Yeah. I, I, I'd be waiting patiently in the kitchen for the turkey neck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, even out in Klein Heights, we had a mackerel man too, coming down the street on Margaret Road. Fresh mackerel, and then my grandfather would be like, "Jay boy, go get him." So I'd get go out and say, "Hey, we need this." And this. but I remember that too. And that's an interesting segue. Speaking about fish, is because Nigel, one of your big specialties was seafood. From what I can remember, you sort of brought that. Uh, you know, whatever you learned in Nova Scotia, you brought that with you. You were a head chef executive chef at uh, Chase, wasn't it, I believe, and a few other restaurants in Toronto. And you sort of kept that, that vibe with you all along. Do you still, is that still something you do today? Or can you sort of give me a rundown? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I walked into any situation being like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a seafood chef, you know, I've right. always been a chef. Um, but being from Nova Scotia, I kind of I guess I kind of got pegged as a seafood focused guy and it was also something that I was good at. And, and what we were doing in Toronto was different than a lot of other places in Toronto at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah. You know, like clam, clam bake has been one of my signature dishes for lack, lack of a better term. Kind of, mm -hmm. I don't really kind of hate that that term because it pinpoints you into only being able to do a couple things. Right. But every time we do a, you know, clam, clam boil with potatoes and corn and maybe a lobster or some mussels in there, like people lose their minds. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just something I've, I've always been, been, been good at. Um, I did open the chase in Toronto back in 2014, I think it was. Yeah. I worked at a restaurant prior to that in the uh, St. Clair neighborhood um, called Catch, which was right. I remember very, that one. very seafood focused. And I was buying a lot of my fish from Nova Scotia. Um, actually, I had a couple of connections back in Nova Scotia, and what I was getting was bycatch boxes. So, um, you know, they'd go out to fish there whatever, however many tons of halibut mm -hmm. and everything that they brought on board that they couldn't sell due to regulations, they'd be pegged as bycatch. And so instead of letting that go to waste, I'd get these random boxes. And so I'd get hake and pollock and I'd get an albacore tuna in there every once in a while mm -hmm. and flounders and, and other stuff like that. Um, and just kind of make a menu of it that day and wait to see what I, 
the next box was to kind of yeah. put that together. Um, so I did a, I went through a run in, in Toronto and I left Toronto 2018, I think it was. Um, and all I would say that all my experiences there were very seafood focused. So yeah. it's something I, I love. I just never, I would never put a label on my hat that says like the seafood guy, but right, it, right, right. it is something that, you know, has been a major part of my, of my career. Yeah. And now I'm in Vancouver. I, I'm working at a, a private golf club, actually, uh, which is a bit of a change from the restaurant world, but, but super fun. And, and I got a lot of free reign and, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm the food and beverage director there. So I run the front of house as well, but still in the kitchen cooking every day and mm-hmm. still mentoring and, and teaching and, and bringing in as much of the East coast influence as I, as I can. It's pretty, cool. it's pretty interesting here on the West coast and how, you know, Canada's pretty massive geographically. Um, but we do a lot of things different here on the West coast than they do on the East coast. So um, it's, it's fun introducing that culture um, over here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you once we're, once we're, once we're a maritimer, you can't take that, uh, that can't take that away from us. Right. And we're always bringing that maritime vibe with us to everything, our, our, our personality, our food, it's important and to the community. So yeah, I, I, I remember uh, tasting some of your foods uh, quite a bit, and uh, it, was, it was always fantastic. So, yeah, man, that's cool. Uh, Wendy, I understand you have a few educational uh, initiatives that you're working on right now that involve uh, educating Black communities about food and nutrition. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, sure. So some of the things that I've been doing over the last couple of years really kind of started around this food sovereignty thing, uh, or black food sovereignty, um, uh, movement kind of started for me, um, during COVID, uh, 2020, I was asked to talk about black food sovereignty and I did a little bit of research on, on the movement. And it's something that's been happening in other parts of Canada and in other uh, in parts of the U S. Um, a lot of food movement in New York, um, lots of stuff going on in Toronto. Quebec is really interested right now in the Black Food Sovereignty Movement. So just this past week, uh, there were some sessions held in person and virtually for folks that are that are kind of already in the movement, um, but just politicizing themselves and uh, trying to like uh, access funding. So over the last couple of years, I was asked um, just to talk about the connection between food and and education, because mm-hmm. I I primarily primarily I am an educator. I was uh, part of the public school system for the last twenty years, and most recently I now work as a executive staff officer, BIPOC engagement and advocacy with the Nova Scotia Teachers Union. Um, I am uh, the second black person in that role in one hundred and twenty five years. Wow. Uh, in as a staff officer, but the first in this type of role where uh, we're looking at, you know, black and indigenous and uh, people of color, the whole BIPOC thing. And uh, so I've been doing lots of um, presentations with colleagues, with other teachers throughout Canada. So yesterday or Thursday, I did a, a presentation for the Canadian Teachers Federation in Ottawa around black food sovereignty and the difference between really my Main objective was to share the difference between uh, a term that we hear quite often, uh, food security. We hear that term being thrown around all the time. You know, people are food insecure. We want people to be food secure. What does that actually mean? And uh, for me, uh, it's more important for people to be food sovereign. So even when you're food secure, it means that you know, you might have a grocery store up the street, you might have access to food, you might even be able to afford the food that's at your grocery store, there might be other amenities, you might have all the utilities that you need in order to prepare a meal and a safe place to do that. But does that mean you have control over your food? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Do you even know where your food's coming from? Yeah. What is in your food? So the food sovereignty piece is about really connecting to nature, connecting to culture, um, they say that people that eat their indigenous food are actually healthier. 
mm. than people who don't. Mm -hmm. So um, being food sovereign means that like I'm in control of my food systems, not just able to access food that might even be unhealthy for me, that might actually uh, not be good for the environment, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't connect me to my culture. And so this Black food sovereignty movement is really a cultural movement. And it's about self-determination and control, us controlling our health because our food is our health, right? Our food, what we eat, determines how healthy we are. And how healthy we are also determines like a quality of education and our mm -hmm. access to all these other pieces. So when I say food is everything, for me, food is everything. And so I also get to share some of that information with um, some youth here in Nova Scotia, uh, myself as well as seven other black educators um, have started the African Nova Scotia Freedom School. So that's an avenue to share this information. Community groups have been looking for it as well. And um, I sat on a uh, indigenous and black food sovereignty advisory circle, which now has moved on to um, becoming a governance board, right? Mm -hmm. So we're looking at creating policy around food security and food sovereignty. Because um, I feel like in terms of being able to actually do something that makes a difference, um, I think that the first place, I mean, there's many places we could start, but one of the first places is policy, like creating mm -hmm. policy you know, making people accountable for what they say they're going to do, having yeah. some kind of referent that we can say, well, listen, well, this is what it says in the, you know, 94, uh, the, um, what I'm, I'm thinking about the truth and reconciliation, right? Mm -hmm. Indigenous people are able to go back to that document. Hey, you, we need to go back. This is what you said you were going to do. The Black Report, you know, recommend 48, 46 recommendations. We can go back to that. And so, um, yeah, so one of the things that I've been uh, busy doing is collaborating with Indigenous and Black food sovereignty people from around the country. So, you know, all the provinces and the territories and just really, I'm doing a lot of presentations, a lot of teaching, but mostly learning. Like mm -hmm. I'm mostly in these spaces learning from incredible people and in particular like I want to just really just talk about one group uh the indigenous folks in this country in this part of the world and other parts of the province different provinces have taught me so much about food sovereignty mm -hmm. and um there's a man by the name of uh, Byron Beardy he's uh, part of the four arrow nations in Manitoba so there's four nations he his family belongs to one of those nations. And he said something that was honestly groundbreaking for me. So simple, but so true. Um, he said that when you're born, food is included. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Food's included. We've made food into a commodity, mm -hmm. right? You at one point, we at one point, our ancestors at one point were able to find and collect and feed themselves from the land mm -hmm. right hunting foraging fishing cultivating you know farming like all of those pieces where every person should have a right to healthy culturally appropriate dignified in a dignified way should have a right to food mm -hmm. like shouldn't have to beg for it no. shouldn't have to go to the food bank shouldn't mm -hmm. have to do all of these you know ask for a free lunch at school Mm -hmm. All these things, these are our basic human rights mm -hmm. to be able to have access to healthy food. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it's important work. Definitely. And, um, I'm, I'm glad that you're tackling it. It's, uh, that's awesome. And just a, a quick side note, I want to get both of you guys' take on, um, like we're all dealing with the effects of inflation recent inflation recently, and I'm just wondering, uh, first, Nigel, I'll, I'll ask you, in, in your industry, how, how is it affecting your work? Because everything, like from supply chains to this inflation, food is impacted in this, in this manner, right? How is it affecting your work? It's crazy. <laughs> um, the, I mean, the prices, as you know, are, are through the roof. 
everyone goes to the grocery store. Uh, I was, I think I was paying $4 for a loaf of bread last year and eight or $9 now. Wow. In a grocery wow. store in Vancouver um, for, for a loaf of bread. And, and that's, and that's out of control. Um, mm-hmm. From a restaurant perspective, um, you know, our costs go up and our budget stays the same. And the end user is not really prepared to pay, I would say, in general, not really prepared to pay the uh, resulting price. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, okay, bread's more expensive in the grocery store, and they accept that. But when a burger goes from 15 bucks to 30 bucks, you know, no one's paying that, or yeah. no one wants to. And yeah. so there's a lot of, there's a definitely a disconnect there. I think that our our one of our major issues is the food waste at the beginning of the line that drives the prices up. And our um, as a, as a society, how we want our food to look when we buy it, and how much waste that creates in the in the fields and in the sorting and all the middlemen that ends up before it gets to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think should change, which would help impact those those prices you know a red pepper costs six dollars but we're also throwing away the pepper that's got a blemish on it yeah so there's some there's some major um systematic issues there uh what i hear from you know doing investigations with my with my suppliers and and looking at the people the the purchasers of the big companies is that it's not going to get better Mm-hmm. It's essentially what I'm being told mm-hmm. and that we're going to food prices are going to go up 10 to 20% every year. Really? Um, as, as a forecast and maybe it'll level, level off at some point, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems we got to fix mm-hmm. in the system or people just won't be able to, I mean, people will continue to eat less healthy and they'll continue to, um, yeah, not have enough food. So it's a problem. And and Wendy, from a like a community advocacy standpoint, this um these rising costs, you know, what angle are you taking on that? Like what what how does that affect you and what you're well, doing? I think that's where the food sovereignty piece comes in because someone else is in control of our food. Mm. Someone has control of the prices, what we have access to, how we get our food. Like someone else has access to that, and that is in its in and of itself the problem. Mm-hmm. So we need the local. One of the uh, tenets of Black food sovereignty is the local piece. So we need to localized food. So if we're able to equip communities with uh, places to grow food, um, we uh, myself and three other African Nova Scotians this summer, along with Just Food which is a Halifax City initiative, decided that we're gonna create a Black Food Sovereignty Plan for Nova Scotia. Uh, so actually for camp, for Halifax, but we're hoping that people would use this as a model for other mm-hmm. parts of Nova Scotia. Toronto, uh, just um, during the first year of actualizing their uh, Black Food Sovereignty Plan that they started uh, in 2021. Uh, and so they're in the first phase. And if we're able to like, um, there's all these little like odd pieces of land throughout the city, like on the end of a boulevard or in front of like just odd pieces of land that aren't really big enough to grow, like, or to, you know, to build a structure, but big enough for like a greenhouse or mm-hmm. big enough for some planters. And so um, there are a lot of uh, new Canadians that are here as well that really take advantage of that farming piece, like the community gardens. And that's kind of, how I got started with growing my own garden is I access one of the community gardens that is on Bears Road underneath like this overpass and next to the fire station, this piece of land that no one was using that didn't have access to water. And so we, we remedied that by um, getting like a water tank and using the water from the fire station next door. But there's lots of pieces of land like that around the city so if we're able, as uh, Black people, people of African descent, are able to access these pieces from this, of land from the city and grow our own food, people are bringing in seeds and bringing and growing food that they would have typically grown in Africa. 
And there's right. food that you can grow here, cultural food that people can grow that is familiar to them. Um, because when they come to Canada and they see the Canadian food guide, which coincidentally looks very much like the most recent Canadian food guide, like very like plant heavy, you know, and uh, protein from like animals um, is definitely a lot less than what we were accustomed to eating. Because mm-hmm. growing up, we were eating meat with every meal. Meat and potatoes, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> meat with every single meal. And yeah. so but a lot of our ancestors would not have done that. We would have eaten mostly plant-based food and flavored our food with meat, salted meat, smoked meat, you know? And so we were eating uh, what the current food guy kind of suggests now, coincidentally. Um, But also when you look at the Canadian food guy, when you look at that visual, if you're coming from another country, you might not even recognize some of those foods. Mm -hmm. Right? So... um, uh, I think that really giving people access to be able to grow their own food and preserve their own food and really put the control at a local level. Then when Loblaws and Sobeys decide to raise the prices and, you know, they just, they're deciding what vendors they are using and what foods are going to be coming into the store. But when we put control over our food systems at the hands of the people in community, then I don't really see this as an issue. I don't really see the cost of food as an issue and the raising inflation prices. Really what we need to do is we need to make sure that we have seeds, we have fertile land to plant our seeds, and we are able to create systems within community collectively um, to uh, trade some of those things, to make sure that our neighbors are well fed, and to make sure that we now have control over our food and our mm-hmm. food, more importantly, our food systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of brought us full circle because we we started off talking about how back in the day, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, we, a lot of our food came off the land, right? And uh, you know, the there's something to be said about that, definitely. Yeah, because you uh, know, like Aunt Edie and your Uncle Charlie, and when Grandpapa. Uh, out at the homestead in Guysborough Road, I don't ever have any recollection of, like, even as a young kid going out to Guysborough Road, of him ever visiting a grocery store. No. Yeah, interesting. They didn't yeah. go to grocery stores. Yeah. You, you, you raised a couple pigs, you had chickens, you could get your greens, your dandelion greens. You see what they're doing with dandelions these yeah. days? Yeah. Heal up. Hmm. Right. The milk from the dandelion, the dried leaves, like the roots of the dandelion plant, like going back to those medicinal pieces, like our great, great grandmother, your great, great grandmother, Derek, uh, Sophia West. Yes. In the backwoods. She had all kinds of medicines. Um, I remember my father having like uh, the mason jars, the big mason jars. And I wish I would have asked more questions, but. He would go out home and come back in. I don't know what he collected, but he would have steeping, probably bitter tea, in a, a glass jar, and that's what he would drink, right? Mm-hmm. So even the medicines, we didn't go to the pharmacies for the medicines. Our medicines came from the land. Mm-hmm. And in order to keep us healthy, our medicines, as my friend Anon Leiloli mentioned, food was a premier medicine. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. That's when you... You know, come wintertime, my mother always had in that little uh, honeybee-shaped or honeycomb, yeah, honeybee-shaped bottle, honey. She would mix up honey honey, uh, honey and lemon. And yeah. we, before we went to school every morning, during the winter months, you had to take a couple of shots of that before you went to school. Two teaspoons. Mm-hmm. And then you were all healthy through the winter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, back in the day. My goodness, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> So this this has been a <clears throat> fantastic conversation, um, you know, reminiscing about how things used to be when it's centered around food and um, and how things are going. Uh, thank you both very much for your time. Uh, Nigel, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Uh, not particularly. I just I want to thank you for having me on and 
pleasure to finally put a face to the name and and love hearing your stories, Wendy. Um, and it's this interview and the process leading up to this has been so interesting to to really open our minds as to where the source of Nova Scotia food came from and how how intertwined it is is really special. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and Wendy, do you have anything to add? Because I think probably the last thing that I, I would say is that, you know, we really need to be thinking more about our connection to food. And when thinking about our connection to food, really thinking about our connection to land, because uh, land is directly connected to culture. And connecting to land means that, you know, we become healthier um, and that we know where our food comes from. And we really need to stop to consider the health benefits and also the disadvantages that um, come with what we're consuming, right? Mm -hmm. What we're consuming, like you just think, think about your digestive system and most issues that people have are really around digestion. And uh, when people are food insecure, they are twice as likely to have respiratory issues when they go to the hospital. They're four times more likely to have mental health issues. And just if we can think about food as being our primary met, premier medicine, then we can really think about every time we take a bite of something or we're preparing something, uh, what the health benefits or the disadvantages might be. And so um, one of the things that I always thought that was so important to combat, to fight was racism until I realized that really food is the first fight. I really need to be fighting for access to healthy food and access to healthy food, really putting that at a local level and putting it in the hands of the people that are actually going to be consuming that food. And so, yeah, that's, a, I guess, the last thing I just want to mention is that the connection to land. Um, I heard this quote, um, they who control the land control the people or control the food and they who control the food control the people. Mm. Whoever is controlling the food, they're controlling us. Mm -hmm. Right. We're like, how do we deal with this inflation? How do I now get, you know, access to apples? How do I get access to uh, medicines and things that they're in control? We're, yeah. we're, we're in the corner. We're back in the corner. But I think that could be very, um, not easily remedied, but I think there is a solution. And I really uh, and truly believe that food sovereignty is the piece that's missing. Right. No, that I can definitely see that. Definitely. Well, well said. Yeah. Jay Jones, take us up. Yeah. Well, I mean, doing these podcasts is always a treat because you get to see familiar faces and, and catch up and, and learn new things. And, you know, Nigel, of course, you know, our history, you know, and it's so cool that you're from Nova Scotia. And it was also cool that you could come share your time. And I appreciate that, man. And Wendy, same with you. Uh, memories you know, nostalgia going back to the church days and the hot lunch program and, and, and everything that Nova Scotia embodies was always, there was always food to eat. It might not always been that. Well, I mean, when I was young, it was like, yeah, like you said, a lot of meat, potatoes and, you know, uh, fried bologna sandwiches, but, uh, um, but it was all, it was all good. And there was always food to eat and it really brought a sense of community. And it's so good to be able to be a maritimer and continue that sense of community, even through these conversations. So I want to thank you both for sharing your time and uh, keep on keeping on and fighting the good fight really. Um, and that's about it. So thanks for coming on with us. Thank you. Thank you. Nice meeting you, Nigel. Good seeing you again, Derek and Jay. Yes, indeed. Thank you for the invite. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You have been listening to Down Home. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On a 
high plateau From the one down below To the future of the funk Getting lost in the flow Contact with the spot McX Now it's time to flex With the force from the soul Reaching all aspects Getting deep No time to sleep As you reach your next phase Laying it all on the line New trail stop the blaze It's a fire inside A brand new path Breaking down the sum to one Feeling free I just laugh The song Breaking new ground from the breakdown. Like magic prescribed, only to see the perfect blend, like a diamond in the rough, ready to drop a perfect gem. It's time to shine, so fine.